Our modern Western culture places little to no value on the power of our nightly dreams to inspire, shift, and reorganize our lives. This podcast demands a deep reconsideration of the role dreams play on our path to a more vital and meaningful life. The following is living proof of the life-affirming power of dreams to affect change and redirect the trajectory of our inner and outer lives. These are the dreams that shape us. Death and loss deeply color the human life. It changes and deepens us in ways that few other experiences can. And as hard and harrowing as this experience can be, if we are willing to be worked by our grief, if we are willing to sit with it, and to explore the depths of our own love that it reveals to us so poignantly, then we ultimately receive the transcendent gift of praise that grief offers us. Praise for feeling so fully, for having such beauty be offered to us through this person that has changed our life, that is shaped who we've become in some way and to have had the blessing of having had someone in our life who could touch us that deeply. God, I mean, the colors that pour forth from grief. How beautiful. And what a loss it would be to not know you could feel or love that profoundly. And like our guest today, many of us look for signs, often through our dreams, that our loved one who passed is okay and in a better place. And sometimes they come right away. Sometimes they take some time. And sometimes some of us never receive that dream. And I don't know how to reconcile when they don't show up. But our conversation with Laurel explores the many ways that we are connected to the ones we love during life and after death. She lost her beloved husband and best friend John on September 10th of 2000. And this is their heartfelt story of love and loss of grief and praise. And we hope you enjoy it. Laurel Clark, thank you for joining us on The Dreams That Shape Us. You're here because we heard about you and that you'd had some extraordinary experiences in your dreams. And well, that's what we do on this podcast. We delve into dreams that shape people's lives, that change people's lives. Sometimes the dreams are 
of the ordinary type, you know, dreams. I hate to use the word ordinary with dreams, but, you know, it's processing things that are going on in your life. They're processing and helping you to digest your emotions. They're kind of pointing ahead towards the growth and the change process that you can have as a person, as a personality in your heart and in your soul. And then there are these other types of dreams where it seems like this outside force is coming into your dream space. And I think that you've had both of those types of dreams. So today we're going to start off with um, talking about John, who was your husband who passed away. And we want to go back to the time when he was alive with us and on this earth and find out a little bit about him. So Laurel, for one, thank you for joining us. And two, will you tell us about John? Sure. So thank you very much for having me on your podcast. And Thank you for asking me about John. One thing that is very interesting to me is that in our culture, um, people seem to have an aversion to death. And it's been a long time since John died 20 years ago. And we had a very deep love and a very deep friendship. He was a very charming, engaging, kind, friendly person. And I like talking about him. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm pining away. It doesn't mean that I'm sad all the time. And sometimes when I mention him, it's as if people want to leapfrog over that and change the subject. And to me, that's more painful than being able to talk about somebody who was such a, a beautiful person. So the people, he and I met. Uh, pretty late in life. We were both students at a school called the School of Metaphysics, and we were both involved. In Missouri, yes. Yeah, it, the headquarters is in Missouri. I was actually um, in Denver supervising some schools there. He was in Chicago, and we oftentimes had meetings at the headquarters in Missouri so when we first met, we met as friends because we were both involved in other relationships and colleagues and the relationship I was in ended. And then sometime after that, the relationship he was in ended. And it was kind of like we both looked at each other and realized that in addition to our close friendship, we were really attracted to each other. So then we got together as a couple. and. Um, in my opinion, I think that's the best way to have a couple type relationship is to have friendship at its foundation. So um, people who knew him, anytime that I talk to anybody who knew him, they say similar things that he was uh, very kind. He had a profound influence on their lives. He comes from a big extended family who are all like that also. They're very kind. They're very welcoming. He and I were only uh, together as a couple for eight years and married for six. And his extended family, my in-laws, embraced me as a part of their family, even though, you know, the, the actual period of time he and I were together was very short. So one thing that was interesting about our relationship is that it was long distance in the beginning. As I said, I was in 
Colorado. He was in Chicago. Um, then after we married, I was in Missouri. He lived in Dallas for a while. So part of how our dreams came into the relationship is that we actually practiced, not always successfully, but we tried meeting each other in our dreams. So we would set up a dream date, like saying, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. What a, what a great way to have a date, huh? You meet right. up in the dream space. Um, I would like to talk more about that um, as we go, but please continue um, telling us about John and how you two uh, used your dreams as a center point of your romantic relationship. This is great. So we would set up a time like an evening and say, okay, tonight let's meet in our dreams. And then the next day we would compare our dreams. And as I said, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But the fact that we were both aware of the reality of dreams and paying attention to them, I think really contributed to being able to communicate in dreams. So John had type one diabetes. And when we met, I didn't know much at all about diabetes or the complications that it can have. And he was a teenager when he was diagnosed and healthy and strong. He was a wrestler. Um, he was very attractive. He was an actor for a while and a model. And so he just didn't really pay too much attention to the doctor's warnings about what could happen with diabetes. And so by the time we met, when we were in our mid-30s, there was already a lot of internal damage in his body that he wasn't aware of because it wasn't showing up yet. And in the time that we were married, within that short period of time, he began to lose his eyesight. He um, had blood pressure problems. He began to lose his kidney function and then did lose his kidney function. And he died young. He was only 42 when he was waiting for a kidney transplant. So that period of time when he was going through these health challenges, I mean, some of the time he seemed fine. He was still working. And actually one of the ways that he influenced a large number of people, he worked for a telephone telemarketing company. And because of the engaging kind of person he was, he was great at it. He would go off script and get involved in these conversations. I mean, he had elderly women all across the country who gave us dinner invitations because he made friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, when you can, uh, you know, when you can charm them of all ages, then you have reached um, that, uh, you've reached the next level without ability to, uh, uh, to, to charm and to please. Right. He sounds like a wonderful uh, person and that his life was cut short all too early. Um, will you tell us about the first time that you uh, had a dream that featured a medical emergency? The way it's been described to me is, is that you were practically jolted awake with this sense that he was in emergency and that you needed to do something now. Yes. Um, so we were in different cities. He was working, um, we lived in the country in the middle of nowhere. So he was commuting about an hour away to 
worked this job as a telemarketer and he was staying in a house and I was pretty sure that he was by himself. So I had this dream that he was having a low blood sugar reaction and couldn't wake up. And for any listeners who are not familiar with um, insulin, if somebody has too much insulin artificially injected and their blood sugar isn't high enough, it, they can go into a coma and die. And so this was a pretty serious thing. If he indeed was asleep and having this insulin shock reaction, if he didn't wake up, he could die. And that's what my dream was. So I was awakened suddenly and I called him on the phone and he didn't answer. The phone rang and rang. So when that happened, that made me even more sure that this was probably actually happening. So I sent him a very strong telepathic message, meaning that I yelled at him in my mind. I yelled his name mentally and I yelled at him to wake up. And then I called, and this time, after a number of rings, he did answer the phone, and he sounded really groggy, so I could tell from the sound of his voice that he very likely was having this insulin shock reaction, and I tried to give him instructions to test his blood sugar. He couldn't really understand what I was saying. Again, if your listeners aren't familiar with insulin shock, it's kind of like somebody who is extremely drunk who can sort of talk, but they don't really know what you're talking about. So that was alarming to me. So then I called a friend of ours, you know, this is the middle of the night, so thank God she woke up. Um, I didn't even really know her that well. She knew John better than she knew me. I told her what was happening. I asked if she could go to this place where he was, which she did. And I'm not even sure how she got in, if she rang the doorbell enough that he answered the phone or if she got in through a window. But anyway, she was able to get in the house. She tested his blood sugar and found out that it was indeed dangerously low, called the paramedics and was able to um, revive him, basically. So do you think that the, um, do you think your work that you've done together to create a shared dream space uh, would have laid the groundwork or the foundation for you to have that dream um, and then be able to reach him telepathically because if he's if he's asleep then the dreaming function is running in the background whether or not he's like in REM stage or something like that the actually Carl Jung says that the dreaming function of the mind runs all the time um, it's just that when we go to sleep we're drawing closer to it or it draws closer to us so do you think that that work that you did together the the experience you had with each other in a dream state helped you in that moment i do think it helped i think that one of the reasons or one of the ways that it helped was in me first of all being awakened by this dream and knowing the difference between something that is purely symbolic and something that felt like a very real experience. And by that, I don't mean to say that dreams aren't real, but in my experience, there's a different quality to dreams where the dream has 
an actual connection with something that's happening in waking reality and a dream that's purely symbolic. Well, you're going to have to tell us more about that. Okay. So before I get into that, one thing I do want to say is, unfortunately, I think the advent of cell phones has made many of us lazy about paying attention to intuition. So when you're talking about the dreaming function operating all the time, I would actually call that intuition. I mean, what I call dreams is when we're asleep, but I I can appreciate that being called a, a dreaming reality. So neither John nor I had a cell phone at this time. And because a lot of our time was spent physically apart from each other, we really strengthened our telepathic ability. So, I mean, there were times when we were awake that I would just get this feeling to call him and call him and find out that he had been trying to get a hold of me or vice versa. And now that people have their cell phones with them 24-7, you don't have to rely on uh, telepathy. You can just pick up the phone. So yeah. I think practicing with intuition without a phone is important. And a simple way people can practice that, for example, is waking up in the morning without an alarm clock where you're actually giving yourself a mental message saying, I have to wake up at this time. You know, you can still set the alarm for a a backup if you need to, but you don't have to depend on that. Or to do the same thing with connecting with friends and loved ones. Or even waking up in the middle of the night, um, the, about halfway through your sleep cycle, which is um, recommended by um, Edgar Casey and others as a good time to uh, meditate and also to recall the dreams that you had in the first half of the night, which if you sleep straight through, you know, the full, let's just say eight hours, the dreams that you've had at, let's say, hour four um, which do tend to be, you know, it tends to be a long REM stage at that point where you have this really vivid, intense stage of dreaming, you you tend to forget it. But if you can cue yourself to wake up, you know, in the middle of the night, you'll often wake up right after you've had a stretch, maybe let's just say about a half an hour of good REM stage dreaming. So you're saying that this kind of practice will hone that ability that we all have. You you say the word telepathy, and I know that there are going to be people out there who are going to be picturing like, you know, Marvel superheroes, like, oh, those are the only people who have, you know, superpowers. And this sounds like to me that it's something that you're so comfortable that you don't even, you're not even thinking, oh, there might be people out there who don't realize that this stuff really is real. You're, you sound to me like you're so familiar and comfortable with it that it just rolls right off your tongue because you've experienced it so vividly that there's no doubt in your mind that it's, it's an ability that you have. And I think you might agree that it's an ability that everyone at least has the potential for. Yes, absolutely. I agree that everybody has the ability how much people make use of it, I think has to do with belief. I think it has to do with practice. So I would say that most people have had an experience of thinking about somebody that they hadn't 
thought about in a while, you know, maybe someone they haven't seen in years, and then they get an unexpected phone call or they get an email or a letter in the mail. And they might pass it off as being coincidence or, oh, that stuff just happens. When I don't think it's something that just happens, I think it happens because we are all connected with each other. And the degree to which people listen to that inner prompting, to the thoughts that are in their mind, hunches, feelings, whatever you want to call it, when people listen to that and respond to it, that's when I think people realize that there is actually a cause and effect relationship. And, and it's it, not just random. You happen to think about a friend that you haven't talked to in five years and that day they get in touch with you. Like let's right. say you lost their email address or something and you're like, man, I really wish I could get in touch with my old friend. And then, you know, there it is. Now there are wild coincidences that happen in the world. I once rolled um, 46 times in a row um, on a craps table in Las Vegas which I was told was extraordinary, um, although not that it never happened, you know. And I also think I was influencing the dice because there was a man who was betting against me and it really raised the, you know, it kind of rubbed my fur the wrong way. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'll show you. And I kept rolling like the perfect numbers over and over again to the point where the whole table is just erupting, you know. And I felt like that almost like a magic happening. The next time I rolled, I crapped out with like yeah. two rolls. So, you know, so there, what my point is, is that there are sometimes that there are these extraordinary things, the coincidences, let's just say, in some cases, if it's a rolling of a dice, you know, let's just say that there are coincidences. But you're saying that there are other times when um, that person who calls you out of the blue, it's not just they happened to call on that day after you thought about them or woke up from a dream about them or woke up thinking about them. And it probably came out of the dream state, but you couldn't remember exactly what it was. And do you, you had that with John, you had shared dreams. You had shared these telepathic messages like, hey, pick up the phone, you know, or hey, I'm thinking about you. I'd like to talk with you. And the next thing you know, I mean, let's just say within a couple of minutes, there he is on the phone and he's calling you. And that this set the, 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 the foundation that you two had so that you could help him when he was in that diabetic coma. Um, and it sounds like it continued um, this relationship that you had through your dreams um, to the point where he was visiting you after he passed. But let's get up to that point. Laurel, if you don't mind, I kind of jumped in there because I was all excited listening to sure. how you were explaining that. And I'm going, yes, yes, yes. You're, you know this. You've experienced it. You know, it's real. It's not just coincidence, people. There is a cause and effect relationship here. Um, so if you could um, pick up with your narrative and, and tell us um, about that, uh, uh, to continue talking about your dream life with John and how this evolved. So one of the questions you had was how to tell the difference between yes. something that is symbolic or something that you know has happened. I think that comes with experience. I mean, there may be other ways to learn it, but what I have found is both with waking intuition and with dreams, it's really helpful to keep a journal. So the everyday examples we were just talking about that 
somebody pops in your mind who you haven't thought about in decades, and then they call you the next day or you get an email. If you write that down, then it's a lot harder to discount it. So what I, I don't do it anymore, but what I used to do for a while is if the phone rang, you know, this was before cell phones where you had caller ID, you know, a regular hand phone. I don't know if uh, some of your listeners may never have even have had even those, seen, but, yes, a landline. <laughs> anyway, it used to be that there was this thing sitting on a counter or on the wall, a phone, and when it rang, you had no idea consciously who was calling. So if I had a very clear sense of who it was, I would say their name out loud. And then when I answered, if it was indeed that person, I couldn't fool myself into thinking, oh, that was just my imagination or, oh, it's because they would call at that time. So the same thing is true with dreams. I've had dreams sometimes that I thought maybe were precognitive, meaning a dream about the future. So I write it down and write down what my thoughts are. And then if in fact that event happens, then I have proof that I've written down. If it doesn't happen, I also have a way to evaluate, okay, what was I experiencing? What was it about that that made me think or feel that it was precognitive? So it's a way of using yourself as a scientific study. And one thing that kind of bothers me is in the scientific community, there is this belief that in order for something to be true, there has to be evidence-based research. Evidence-based meaning that it has some physical proof. And the challenge with that, when we're talking about intuitive experiences, dream experiences, they're real, but they're not physical. So, I mean, there are effects that happen in the brain from dreaming, but in my opinion and experience, the dream is not a brain event, it's a consciousness event that shows up in the brain, but it's not the brain waves that are causing the experience. And consciousness is not centered in the brain. Uh, the brain is like a receiver for consciousness, which is originating somewhere else. Exactly. And so, okay. I mean, that's why I believe it's possible to have a visitation dream, meaning someone who has died can visit us in our dreams or we can visit them. That person being entity doesn't even have a brain at that point. They've left the body. I do believe that they still exist in a different form. So if it were true that the dream was a purely physical experience, it wouldn't be possible for something like that to happen. Now, we do have some scientific research into this um, that's uh, through the near-death experience. And people such as, well, the most famous name that I know of is Eben Alexander, uh, who was a, a Harvard-trained uh, neuroscientist and uh, professor uh, at their medical school, who was in um, a meningitis uh, coma where he had basically no brain function at all. Uh, for a week. And he described these very, very vivid experiences that he had. Um, and then when he came out of his, his coma, um, as unlikely as it was, he, you know, because most people in his condition end up dying, 
um, he when he talked to the doctors, they said, oh, you know, they gave him kind of the standard. Well, that was just, you know, brain activity. And he said, well, if I was that deeply, let's look at the records because I don't think I was having any brain activity. And sure enough, because he was in a hospital and they were running all kinds of tests on his brain, he was able to look back and go, yeah, there wasn't any brain activity. So how were you having a vivid experience of this afterlife world that you went to um, when there was no brain activity? So his consciousness was not tied to his brain. His brain was dead, but he was still alive and experiencing, um, you know, life, uh, but in a different form. So yes. I find it very interesting that you know this. You know, it's funny, Laurel, is that you, I can tell that you've, you know this without having to believe it. Like you, you know it, you've experienced it because I, I, I hear it in your voice. And this is kind of a, it's, it's such a rare thing these days, even though there's lots of evidence out there. You know, you talk about evidence-based research science, and this is what I hear from people where they, they'll hear about the subject like, you know, consciousness is not tied to the brain. And they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Show me the evidence. And then I show them the evidence and they go, well, there must be, there must be something wrong with their protocols. You know, like they, they'll do anything to avoid having to accept this as being real. And I really like how you're presenting this as tested out for yourself. There are ways that you can do it. You know, you can write down your dreams and see that there are some of them that come to pass later. You can practice, you know, when your phone buzzes and it's in your pocket, ask yourself, who is it? Before you've seen the caller ID, who is it that's calling me? And there are little things that you can do on a daily basis to practice this and find it out for yourself. And you can give yourself the evidence that you need to, well, it either convinces you or it doesn't. So thank you for sharing that. And I can hear that you've, you've actually experienced this and you know it to be real. It's not something that you have to believe because someone told you that it's true. You've actually experienced it. And so let's go back into the, you were talking about um, the precognitive dreams, that this is one of the ways that you can tell. Um, that there is a feel that you said that's to your experience with the dreams is going to help you to differentiate the symbolic ones from the extraordinary. That's my term for it. I call them extraordinary dreams. You have your ordinary symbolic dreams and you have your extraordinary dreams. And the the way that you can tell one is with experience with it, but is there something more that you can add to that? For me, it's that there's a, a feel to them that I've developed, and I suppose the experience that with it has helped me to refine that, but it's like they're more real than real. And I can compare and contrast that with my ordinary symbolic dreams and realize that my level of engagement is less with those dreams and my sensory experience is less with those dreams. But most of all, it's my felt sense. When I wake up from an extraordinary dream, there is just something that tingles inside of me. Is there more that you can add to that or that you can expand on to help our listeners to know when they're having such experiences for themselves? So first of all, I agree with you in terms of the felt sense. And I think that in itself is something that people need to practice because some people are more engaged with all of their senses, including the mental sense of attention than other people are. 
one example I can give is that when I watch a movie, I don't like to talk about it while I'm watching it because that distracts me from getting immersed in the experience. And I know people, even in a movie theater, although people aren't doing that too much anymore, that they watch the movie and they're commenting on it. So it's as if they are removing themselves from the experience. And I think the more that any of us practice immersing ourselves in experience when we're awake, the easier it is to recognize that experience in dreams. And one way to practice that mindfulness is kind of a a buzzword. I would call it undivided attention. So I think it's really helpful. And again, this is really helpful now when there are so many devices that can distract us and people try to multitask. Pick one experience a day to practice engaging all of your mental attention and all of your senses. I like to do it with washing dishes because <laughs> I like the feel of the warm water. I like the uh, you know, sound of the pots and pans when the water's going through them. It makes sort of a resonant sound, the feel of the clean dishes. And I don't have music on. I purposely don't think about other things. I just think about how nice it's going to be to have a clean kitchen. And so any experience, it could be driving, it can be gardening, whatever someone enjoys doing, to purposely pick one experience to give undivided attention and to focus the senses, I think helps people to even understand what that means to have a felt sense. You know, what does it mean for something to be real? And in terms of the dreams, I also have that kind of experience that from keeping track of my dreams and recognizing a qualitative difference between a dream that seems kind of like a a story that I'm remembering and one that I wake up and it felt like I was completely there, I think that comes through experience. So one dream that I had, I don't know that I've had a whole lot of precognitive dreams. I may have that I didn't pay attention to. But again, in terms of the evidence-based research, I know people who have had precognitive dreams of some kind of disaster, I would say, And then in their waking state, when they recognized that everything was lining up the way it had in their dream, they changed something so that they didn't get into the car crash or they didn't experience the bad experience. And so then people say, well, that wasn't a precognitive dream because the thing didn't happen. But it didn't happen because they (laughs) believed that the dream was true. And so they changed it. And, and at, at reddit.com, I've, where I'm a moderator, I have run across dozens or more, you know, it could be into the hundreds by now of people who've done that, who have said, well, you know, I dreamt that I was going to that intersection and, you know, that car that was, you know, T-boned me in the dream. I'm coming up to the intersection and sure enough, the same color car is barreling into the intersection. They're about to run the red light, but I was, a, I, my awareness was enough that I was able to say, oh, the light's green, but I better slow down. 
you know, because they they do that they they dreamed about it. And I think that there are other times that people have this strong felt sense of something just before it happens or could happen and they avoid it because what they're doing is they're remembering the dream that they had forgotten that had yeah. previewed that moment in time. But it also tells us that there's nothing that it's not written in stone in the sense of it has to play out. The time, the future, is a, you're able to see it in a dream state and in other states of consciousness where you can see ahead into time. But what you find out is, is that time is not absolutely determined and that you still have the ability to be able to um, respond in a way that um, changes the outcome. So have you, and you, it sounds like you've experienced that too. Yes, I have experienced that. And I agree with you that there are probabilities for the future, but it's not predestined. It's fascinating to me that almost all of our episodes have had full-blown or at least hints of precognitive functionality within dreams. And it's beginning to showcase how fluid the dream space really is, showing you past, present, and future so profoundly. I personally haven't had any real warning dreams that I can recall, but I have been given information about my future. And my biggest tell, as far as the felt sense is concerned, is that whatever is playing out in the dream or being said to me has this very palpable felt sense that whatever this is that is being relayed will have far-reaching impact on my life. Like, you can just feel it in the dream. There's, like, this gravity of, like, whoa, whoa. And so, like, in a lucid dream, I was told that I was about to meet the woman I was going to marry, that she would be American and hot. (laughs) And that was two months before I synchronistically met Erica. And in the dream, I'm sitting in the car that I was in, just blown away with the feeling, like feeling the impact of being told this thing that will alter the rest of my personal and emotional life. And the other big tell that I have and that I've experienced is feeling the great weight of something that is to come. So like in Suzanne's dream in episode two, where she meets the undertaker and she just knows that he is there for her mother. And she wakes up gasping and feeling the deep gravity of the fact that death is beginning to call for her mother. And so, much like Laurel Express, it takes experience with dreams to verify for yourself what your tells are, because you need time, and you need dreams, and you need life experience to be able to Gauge and compare and to see what happens after you have certain dreams. And I don't know if this is a universal experience, but one of the things I've become aware of in my own dreams is that the ones that seem to be precognitive also seem to have a lack of emotion to them. So if I have a dream of a disaster and I'm afraid in the dream, for me, that's usually not precognitive. It's when something happens and there's a kind of clarity similar to what people I 
who I have heard who've had near-death experiences where they leave their body and they look down and everybody around them is freaked out because their body is lying there on the pavement, but they're not afraid. They're just observing it. That's the quality that my precognitive mm, dreams have had. Yes, Laurel, that is one. Thank you for that. You've just added it to my repertoire. And I think we've just given a very fundamental, easy thing that anybody can you know, uh, use. They wake up from a dream. The dream featured a disaster. Were you drawn into the scene and emotional about it? Or were you sort of able to observe the scene without that strong emotion, considering that there's a disaster that's unfolding, there's people that's dying, there's volcanoes blowing up, stuff like that. You just, you, that is a very key piece of information. And thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And my belief about why that is true is that I think from the perspective of the subconscious mind and the spirit, where the dreams come from, there is not a judgment about things being good or bad. It's all for learning. And it's in our conscious mind that we judge this is good or bad, this is pleasant or unpleasant. And I mean, even in terms of people looking at experiences they consider to be success or failure, most people, when they learn from something, they don't really look at the experience as being a failure, even if they failed to accomplish their goal or do what they wanted to do. It's when we don't learn from an experience that it's considered to be bad. So I think that the dreams are presenting images of experiences that are there for us, the soul and spirit that we are to learn from. And I think that's why it doesn't have that emotional component of um, fear, anxiety, all of those things. So one experience that I had, I don't remember how long before John died this was, but by this time he was on dialysis, had to go three times a week to a dialysis center and Again, I didn't know anything about dialysis. It's, it's, to me, a very bizarre thing where somebody who has kidney failure, they get hooked up to a machine, which functions as an external kidney. The machine takes the person's blood out of their body. It runs it through the machine to clean it, and then it puts it back into their body. So it's like science fiction that actually occurs in our daily yeah. life. And um, so John had this port that had been surgically inserted into his arm. And um, for diabetics, um, because of the imbalance in blood sugar, there's a frequency of the, the places where the port has been inserted in the body being infected. So anyway, he had had this port inserted. He had had an infection. He had been in the hospital. He was working at the time, but was home from work. And I was at work. And again, this was before the days of cell phones. So I'd left in the morning. Well, let me back up. I had a dream the night before. I woke up from this dream that John had died. And I was completely convinced that 
he had died. It had that kind of quality I was talking about. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't upset. You know, this was a man that I loved so much and he was my best friend. So to dream that he died and to have a sense of peace about it was very odd. So anyway, when, when I woke up, I thought he was going to be lying there next to me in bed having died, but that wasn't true. He was breathing. And when he woke up, I thought, okay, should I tell him about this dream? Because it felt really real. I didn't want to upset him, but at the same time, I felt a kind of responsibility that I should tell him. So I told him about the dream and he didn't seem too bothered by it. So I got up, got dressed, went to work. And I think maybe nine or 10 in the morning, I had this incredibly strong urge to call him. And so I called him. And when he answered the phone, he had a very strained um, tone to his voice. And he said, I'm so glad you called. I was just about to call you. And he said, I think I'm bleeding. So he was blind by this time. And so he couldn't see what was happening, but he felt that this place in his arm was wet and he heard something dripping. So he thought he was dripping blood from this place where the port had been in his arm. And I hope this story doesn't bother your listeners because um, it's a little bit gruesome. So anyway, I left, I went home, I walked in the house and as I'm walking in the front door, he said, um, I just want to warn you, I think there's a lot of blood in here. And so I walked into the kitchen and there he was, he was standing over the sink and he had his arm over the sink and the kitchen floor was completely, it, I mean, it was almost like a, a carpet of blood and I could see his footprints in there. So what had happened is this place where they had inserted the port in his arm, there was um, an, an artery had burst. And so he was losing a huge amount of blood. It was all over the place. So I called the paramedics, they came over. I mean, just looking at the look on their faces, I could tell that this was really serious. He got rushed in an ambulance to an emergency room. I won't tell the whole story, but basically he was in three different emergency rooms that day. And I was in a, a big state of shock. So when I was following the ambulance from the small hospital that was near where we lived to the one in the bigger city that was 50 miles away, I just kept having this dream come back in my mind, wondering, you know, is this the day he's going to die? And finally, about midnight, he was um, admitted to surgery. I mean, this is something that had been going on all day. And once he was in surgery, I could relax enough to even think about calling someone. So I called a teacher of mine who knew us and knew John's condition, and she also knew about dreams. And so I told her about that dream I had had in the morning and that I was wondering if he was gonna die in surgery. And she said, have you called his mother? Which, I mean, that hadn't even occurred to me with everything else that I was dealing with. So I was a little hesitant to call her because it was the middle of the night, but I thought, okay, if he dies and I don't call her, I'm going to never be able to forgive myself. So I called her, told her what was going on. 
she was in Arizona, we were in Missouri. She said, you know, should I fly out there? I said, I, I really have no idea, but I know the surgeon is well respected. I think he's in good hands. So what she did was she got on the phone. She at that time had four or five uh, siblings. So she called her siblings. She called John's siblings. She called people in her church. So she called all of these people to ask them to pray for him. And I mean, this was all over the country, Arizona, California, New York, Texas, Ohio, Michigan. Literally, there were people all over the United States praying for him. And he came through the surgery better than the surgeon even expected. They were able to correct the burst artery, to do the things they needed to do. So he didn't die that day. And I don't know, but I believe that the fact that I remembered the dream, I told my mentor about it. She told me to call his mother or ask who I had, that she had all these people praying. I believe that that's why he didn't die. It was all of those prayers happening. And, and it was prompted by the dream to, because you knew that there was a seriousness to it. The dream said, you know, this isn't just a, a medical emergency, or it gave you the sense that there was the possibility he could die. So it prompted you to set this chain of events in motion that led to all these people who were loved him and, and were praying for him to pull through. And he did. Yes. And you think that the dream was sort of the first domino to fall? I do. And, you know, looking back over it, when I think about the fact that, for one thing, it was almost as if I was on automatic pilot during the day. And, I mean, I think that's part of how shock functions, is that it shuts down anything unnecessary so we can focus on the one thing that needs our attention at the time, which for me was getting him the medical help he needed and making split-second decisions in the best way that we could. And the fact that that dream kept playing in my mind throughout the day was a factor in me considering what I could do or what I should do and one thing that I do want listeners to know is that I think sometimes people are afraid to talk about dreams because they don't want people to tell them they're crazy. So I didn't tell any of the doctors I had had this dream, but I knew that my mentor would pay attention to it and would believe that it was important. And I mean, her advice to me to call his mother was something that really hadn't even occurred to me. And I think that it's important not to be afraid to share dreams and also to have a sense of who are the supportive people who we can share our dreams with who aren't gonna talk us out of it and say, oh, that was just your imagination. Oh, that's crazy. Because especially if somebody is not really sure if a dream is important, it's not helpful to have somebody who is going to bash it and have them disbelieve it instead of 
seeing how they might be able to respond to it. And on the other end of it, um, the it's helpful to have someone in a, in a family or a social circle, friend circle, who is familiar with dreams, because this is something, Laurel, that I have experienced a lot at Reddit and, and through other uh, means of people contacting me. They say, I had a friend, I had a dream that someone died. What should I do? Should I, should I, should I tell them? You know, how should I respond to this? What if, you know, what, what if they don't die and I share this dream and it makes me look silly? You know, it is maybe the dream is just a silly dream and, you know, I, I shouldn't pay any attention to it. And having that person like you had with your mentor to, to, cause you're in shock at that moment and you're not thinking, oh yeah, call his mom. And then that's what sets in this, you know, gets the rest of the chain to fire, you know, her, her calling people around the country to get the prayer circle going. So we all need someone that we can, to, who could, you know, in every circle, who is that person who is wise about dreams, um, who could be referred to um, in uh, such a case, in such an emergency. And you've just given another great piece of advice for a question that I just mentioned that I hear a lot. When to say something when you think you've had a dream that is going to, you know, show the imp- an impact that is going to play out in the future on a person's life, what do you do in that situation as the dreamer? If you could have a third party that you could refer to, even even if like in your case, it was like, Ma, I know if someone called, like if my brother called my mom and said, I think Jason, I had to dream about Jason. I think that he's, you know, he died. You know, I know exactly what my mom would do. She would start praying, you know? And like, so even in that case, he wouldn't even have to tell me directly about it. If you could tell an interested third party about it, maybe their actions and their responses is what ends up um, uh, influencing the outcome. Some, I think there are some cases where the dream is going to come true no matter what, because it's shown an event that is beyond the power of anybody to be able to shape or influence. But in other cases, like you had with John, I think that um, the there are there 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 still is the the ability to be able to respond and change the outcome. So Laurel, it sounds to me like your your mentor's advice to call his mom. And that set into chain of events. It, it and you by sharing your dream, despite not knowing. You know, you're in that moment of, well, was the dream real or not? It sure appears to be playing out, but he's still alive. You don't know what to do. You're in shock. You've been running, chasing ambulances all day, going from place to place. You know, probably worried, sick. So, um, thank you for sharing that because you've just given our listeners another way of being able to respond when they have a dream and they're not sure what to do with it. And I hope that we all have someone that we can turn to um, who can um, listen to us about our dreams and won't just dismiss them as being, you know, some kind of silly flight of imagination. Um, Now, you, this was obviously not the last emergency that John had. Um, You, uh, Did you have any other dreams that uh, presaged what was coming up? I mean, he's already at this point, he's blind. So he's in the final, um, you know, he's in the final stages of uh, the illness, the diabetic illness that was eventually going to claim his life. 
did you have any other dreams that um, seemed to either prepare you or tell you what was coming? Um, not that I remember. One thing I do want to say, just to comment on what you were saying in response to me, sure. yeah. uh, having a third person, I do encourage people to follow the guidelines that I've learned through the International Association for the Study of Dreams, which is to recognize that the dream belongs to the dreamer, because there might be someone that you can share a dream with who's going to give you their opinion about what that dream means, and that can actually be harmful. So if you are going to share a dream, I would strongly encourage that you share it with someone who's not going to say, oh, that means such and such, because that can derail you from your own intuition. So sometimes what I do, if I have a dream about somebody else that I think might be precognitive, I might say to them, I had a dream that you were in as a dream character. I don't know if it was symbolic or if it was precognitive. Do you want to hear it? And I mean, if somebody asked me that, I would always say, yes, I want to hear it. But I've done that a couple of times with people who said, no, I don't want to hear it. And so I keep it to myself. And I also have had that happen that I've shared it with someone who said, yes, of course, I want to hear it. And then I let them know. Or sometimes I will just say to somebody, I had a dream about you. Or I had a dream that you were in as a dream character because, you know, it wasn't necessarily about them. That's all I say. And sometimes they don't say anything. Sometimes they say, please tell me the dream. Sometimes they'll say, you know, this is kind of like the telepathy thing of the phone ringing. Oh, my gosh, I was just, you know, thinking about you. So there are ways to share with somebody that you've had a dream without having to share the content and leave it open to see if the person wants to pursue that or explore that. I like how you give them the the opportunity to respond to instead of just saying, hey, I had a dream about you and blah, you know, and now you're blurting it out, you know, right. because you feel like there's a need for you to share the dream with them because of whatever reason. But the, by asking first, you're allowing this give and take and you're allowing them to say that they are open to receiving it or not. And there might be something just in their response that's coming to them intuitively. Even if they say, no, I don't want to hear about it. Maybe there is something, you know, that's it's responding from a good, you know, the I'll, I'll just say the correct place from within them. Because like you say, oh, I had a dream that you died. Now that worms into their head, you know, right. like, and, and so maybe if they even there, so even if they say, no, I don't want to hear about the dream maybe it's answering from a place within when with from within them but by asking the question to begin with you are allowing the opportunity for a larger uh power something you know the the person's own intuitive ability and the things that can work through them that can talk to them through their intuition to say whether or not this is the right time and place to receive the dream um or not so yeah. Thank you, Laurel, for uh, that tip also. This is going to be very valuable for our 
uh, listeners, I know there are a lot of people who have been in this situation or types of situations where they feel the responsibility to do something with the dream without knowing if it's symbolic or if it's precognitive or telepathic or anything like that. They just, they feel the responsibility to do something with it and they're not sure what to do. And I know we're going to have a lot of people who are going to hear your advice and it's going to resonate with them. It's going to give them some good, solid ways, you know, of of being able, of knowing what to do in that situation. Um, do you want to go into talking about um, the... Uh, let, let's if we can uh, go forward in time to when um, to when John passed and your dreams that were related to that. If you could share those with us, unless you have something else that you still want to finish from um, the segment of the conversation we were just having. Sure, I can talk about the visitation dreams. So even though John was sick, we did not think he was dying. He was waiting for a kidney transplant and was only forty-two. However, he died pretty unexpectedly at home. I was not home at the time, so I didn't have a chance to say goodbye. And we actually hadn't even seen each other in three days because I was at a uh, teaching at a weekend retreat. So I really had a very deep longing to say goodbye. And because we had had all of this dream experience together, I thought for sure that he would come to me in my dreams and that didn't happen. And I don't remember exactly how long this was after he died. I'm thinking it was maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Part of the challenge for me is that after he died, I was not sleeping well or much at all. And so I didn't really have a lot of dreaming time in there. So. However long this was, it was six weeks, two months after he died, one night I wrote him a very long, heartfelt letter in my dream notebook, pretty much pleading to him to please come to me in a dream so we can say goodbye. And I meditated and then I went to sleep. And I had this dream that I was at a graduation ceremony. There was a stage that was pretty far off, but I could see that there were some people on the stage in a kind of semicircle. They were sitting in chairs and John was there. He was wearing this red baseball cap that he used to wear. So I could see him, but I wasn't sure if he could see me. And as the ceremony was over, this was right near the end of the dream, a man who I didn't know came up to me and he handed me my Bible that apparently I had left sitting on the edge of the stage. And when I picked it up, this little piece of paper fluttered out and on it, there was a heart that was drawn in John's handwriting. And I knew in the dream and as I was waking up that it was from him. It was his way of saying, I love you. And I also realized that the reason that he hadn't come to me before that is that he was still graduating to this new existence on the other side and he didn't have the ability to communicate yet verbally. And so that's why this message was a drawing. So that was a very, when you were talking about felt sense, 
it, it was a very bittersweet kind of experience. The sweet part of it, because I knew that he had heard me, that he was responding to my plea and communicating the best way he knew how. The bitter part meaning that it wasn't what I was hoping for, that we would hug each other, we would have this great conversation. However, it did show me that we were still connected and that I just needed to wait for him to go through whatever he needed to go through to be able to communicate with me in the way that I wanted. Thank you for um, pointing for, there's there's something that's so valuable in this. I've run across people who, who they want that visit. You know, they, they've asked for it. Please come to me in my dream. Let me know that you're out there. And time passes and they start to think, well, maybe they're not, you know, maybe they're not really out there anywhere. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me whatever their mind goes off in all these different directions because they don't have the information that they need and what they don't know is that the person on the other side is needs to go through their transition that it's not just that you suddenly sprout wings and you're you know the after death is there's an, a, an evolutionary process that continues and that it can sometimes take what in earth time is weeks or months to even have the ability to be able to communicate back with people who are in this life. I think of it as similar to dream abilities, especially lucid dreaming. Like your first time lucid dreaming, you might think, oh, I want to fly. And you just sort of fly off the ground like a chicken, you know, and then you land again. And you're like, well, you know, or you get caught in the ceiling. I've known people who've had experiences like that and astral travel experiences where um, they get, you know, like they bump into a wall and they can't go through it. But then their next time they have a chance to think about it and go, well, wait a minute, if it's a dream or it's a similar sort of state, I should be able to pass through that wall. And so then the next time that they're lucid dreaming, they're able to apply what they learned or they just keep bouncing off the wall. And so my thought is, is that there are the people on the other side, when they were trying to communicate with us, it is for most of them, it is not a natural ability and that they have to, they have to sort of graduate in the sense of being able to get anything back to us here in this plane. So John's ability, he showed you, he gave you a picture, a graduation. So you understood where he is at and then he was able to say, you know, heart you, baby. Um, and you saw it in his own handwriting. And your sense is, is that that was him. That was not your own subconscious mind responding by creating a wish fulfillment. Let's just call, call him Dr. Freud here. You know, he might say that, well, you know, that's it. It appears to be some that you're fulfilling a wish and that your unconscious mind responded to it you actually had a felt sense of there being more to the dream. Yes, absolutely. And even the picture of the heart, I mean, because John had become blind before he died, I was familiar with his handwriting at that stage. And I mean, there was no mistake in my mind that he was the one who had drawn that. And that, especially because I saw him on the stage, but I couldn't tell whether he saw me or not, that I could feel the 
difference between my urgency to connect with him and his ability to respond to it. And it was kind of like, I don't know if you've had experiences like this, sometimes with babies or young children before they're verbal, I've had communications with them where I'm saying words and they don't have words yet, but I have a very clear sense that they know what I'm saying to them and they just don't have the words to be able to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get that with my cat, Laurel. Once I found out that there are people who are these animal communicators, I looked at my cat and I went, what are you trying to tell me? You know, like, and so there are times now that I've tried like picturing from my mind to her where I'm petting her. And I can, sometimes I can, it seems like she's physically reacting to it because the way that the animal communicators describe it is, is that it's through um, pictures in their mind and feelings. Um, It's nonverbal. So when they telepathically communicate, there isn't actually any words involved. So they're using symbols. Um, or I chose a gesture. I mean, I suppose I could tease the heck out of her and show a picture, send her a picture of filling her cat food bowl, you know, but (laughs) then she goes to the bowl and there's no food there. And that would be terribly torturous for her. Um, our cat is a little bit food obsessed in case you can't tell. Um, so, but just, this is something also very valuable that there are different ways you might be expecting words from the person on the other side or words from the person that you've decided to share a dream with and you're both very much alive, you know, or that you're telepathically communicating and you're, you're wanting, you know, well-constructed, grammatically correct sentences, but instead you're getting feelings, you're getting pictures in your mind. Um, and that is the form of communication, which is more of the right brain style of communicating. There's the left brain, which is very much verbal language. Um, and then there's the right brain, which is more in symbol and picture and feeling. So the when the right brain, which is I've been the way I understand it is it is used more in things like telepathy um, than the left brain. Um, and so you have to get used to this operating in this other, uh, and it can send you a picture that has the entire story embedded in it as information. I mean, would you say, Laurel, that when you looked at that heart, that it told you everything that you needed to know? And that if you unpacked the information out of there, you probably could have written for days in your journal. And all you needed to do was see that heart. But within the context of it's in the Bible it came from the stage. John is on the stage. All of these things are tying together. And so now it's just communicated everything to you, but it was non-verbally. Yes and no. Yes, in terms of I knew it was from John. I knew it was his way of telling me, I love you. I knew that he had heard my plea in terms of everything that I wanted to know. I wanted to know things like, how it felt for him that we weren't together when he died, who was the last person he talked to, you know, what actually happened. There were things like that that were not communicated in that way. But the purpose for having that visitation dream, which was for me to connect with him, yes, absolutely, it was all communicated in that way. And what I've heard from many people who've had visitation dreams is that 
when the person who visits them is in the dream, as you're saying, there's no verbal communication. They're just there. They're aware of their presence. I've heard people talk about having a grandparent, for example, who died, who they can see and feel watching over them, but there's not a a verbal exchange. And I actually, after that dream, had a waking visitation that my mother died four months after John did. And that also was an unexpected stroke that she had. She was in Florida. I was in Missouri. I had to rush home to pack, to fly to Florida. It was in the middle of a big ice storm. So I was freaked out for a lot of reasons. And we lived in the country and it was a a really windy uh, highway that I was scared about driving through the ice. And anyway, when I was in that state, I walked up to the front door of the place that we lived and there were wind chimes outside that John had especially loved because when he was blind, the sound of it was very comforting. They'd been a wedding gift to us and they sounded kind of like church bells. So anyway, when I walked up to the front door, there was no wind that day. And as soon as I walked up to the front door, those wind chimes started moving. You know, this is with no wind. And I felt John's presence behind me as if he were hugging me from behind. And it was so comforting. I mean, if he had been alive, that's what he would have done. And I knew that that was him. That was not just my imagination. So that was similar to experiences I've heard people talk about in dream visitations where they can feel someone's presence as if they're being physically touched even though there are no words exchanged. God, that is so tender and beautiful. And these moments like this are so touching and healing. And in episode two, I recount a visitation dream I had of my grandmother. And that visitation dream didn't come for almost 10 years. But when it did, It was like the holiest of visitation dreams I can imagine, where I hugged her and I felt her and she seemed so proud of me. And what I didn't relay in the retelling of that dream during that episode was that when I woke up, I could still feel her hugging me. And I cried and I cried and I held on to her as long as I could. I probably stayed completely motionless, feeling her energy for at least 15 minutes until I finally had to move. But it was so touching and so beautiful and healing. A few years after that, I was on spring break with a couple friends and we were hiking in Alabama. And the two of them decided to go off and I was gonna hike back a different route all by myself. I just felt a call that I needed some alone time. And as I'm hiking back down through the woods, I find this nice rock ledge to sit on and look out at. And as I'm sitting there, I have my hands down on my side and all of a sudden my left hand goes numb, but not in like a tingly way, just feeling as if like something was placed on top of it. And I tried to intuit like who this was that was sitting with me. And it felt just like my grandmother. 
And it was so sweet and so nice. And I just sat there for as long as that feeling remained, praying that it wasn't just that for some reason I was hitting a weird nerve and my hand fell asleep. But eventually, within a few minutes, that feeling just went away without me moving my hand. And I knew for sure at that point that it was her, that she was there. And after we came back from that trip, and I was thinking back to that moment, I realized that that day was one of the anniversaries of her death. And it was like just a nice confirmation that she's still here. She's still present with me. And she's watching over me. And sometimes there are, can be, words exchanged. Um, and one of the hallmarks of a real of a visitation dream, as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a personal, ordinary, symbolic dream, um, is that the mouths don't need to move. There's this communication, but there's not there. You, you're getting it mind to mind. So yes. I've I've run across many visitation dreams of that type where there was communication and. Um, the one of the nature of the communication is is that the person who visits is never angry or sick or confused or any of these things that I've seen in, in symbolic dreams where it shows that it's reflecting the internal state of the dreamer as opposed to the you know the the soul or consciousness of a person who's come to visit them. Um, so if you have a visit, what you think is a visitation dream and you pick up with, you know, it's, uh, once again, you know, um, jabbing each other with those spears that had made you so upset in the sense of like verbal combat, you know, like there are people who have, they, they had a lot of bad things happen just before their relative or their loved one friend had died. And then they have dreams where those things, those dramas have continued, and I go, mm, that's probably not a visitation dream because the person on the other side doesn't experience those things anymore. There's a clarity and a, sort of a calming of the emotions. So if they, they, they're going to come to you and if there's any heavy emotions like that, it's probably not a visitation. If it's telepathic communication, it, there, that's a good sign that it maybe is a visitation. Is there anything else that you can think of, Laurel, from your experience and from talking to other people about their experiences that you can say about visitation dreams? Well, I absolutely agree with what you're saying about when there's a visitation, the physical appearance of the person who has died is healthy and well. Yes. And not in all cases, but in some cases, they appear at a different age. Yeah, usually, in their prime. Yeah, they right. often look like they are at their peak of mental and physical health. Right. And oftentimes it's the part of their lives that they considered to be the best for whatever yes. reason. Um, and again, in terms of that emotional component, I also agree that once somebody has died, they are able to process what happened. So, you know, even in the case of somebody who was murdered or some horrible type of death, after they've died, they don't experience it as horrible. It was just what happened. So yeah. I, I really like the movie Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze and yes. <laughs> Demi Moore. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty true to life. You know, his experience of what it was like and trying to contact her to help her because she was alive. I mean, it was too late for him 
whoever did that movie, I think, must have understood some things about what actually happens after death. And the dream that I had a year after John died had all of those components to it, the telepathy, the um, health and the well-being. So John died on September 10th of the year 2000. And after a year, I decided I was going to spend the anniversary of his death with myself, doing some prayers, doing some meditation, going to some places that we enjoy going to, kind of enjoying a memory of our time together. And September 10th, 2001, which would have been exactly a year later, was a Monday, and I had a bunch of classes to teach, so that wasn't a convenient day for me to take off, so I thought I'll just do it the next day, which was September 11th, 2001. So. I woke up in the morning and we I was still living in the country. Um, I got in my car, I was gonna drive 20 miles to the closest town to a, a church to do some prayers. So I turn on the radio and I hear the radio announcer yelling, the second tower has been hit. And as I'm driving, I'm listening to this unfolding story about what happened in New York. And so, on top of my you know thoughts about John and spending time with him i was trying to figure out what happened i grew up in a suburb of new york city and i have some friends who live in manhattan i have a sister-in-law who lives in manhattan and her son my nephew was 11 years old at the time so i, I tried calling these people but all of the cell towers were down. I wasn't able to reach anybody. So I, I had no idea if these people were dead, if they were alive, if they were okay. And so I had all of that going in my mind. And like everybody else, um, it was alarming. And I kept seeing these images on the news over and over again of the Twin Towers going up in flames, people jumping out of the buildings. So anyway, that night, I had a dream, and in the dream, John was in New York. He was helping the people who had died in the World Trade Center, and he looked beautiful. He looked really handsome as he was at the peak of his health. He looked healthy. If he were alive, he probably would have driven from Missouri to New York to help people who had died in the World Trade Center. That was the kind of person he was, so he was in his element. And I looked at him and I said telepathically, are they okay? In this really urgent alarm tone of voice, meaning the people who died, are they okay? And he said, yes, they're fine. Once they're out, they're fine. So when he said- As in out of their body. Right, out of their body. And when he said it, when he said yes, he lit up with this amazing celestial, light you know not like the light that comes just you know completely lit up and he had this big smile on his face and I could feel when he said yes they're out <clears throat> I felt this kind of whoosh of exhilaration like the what it feels like when the spirit leaves the body and I woke up from that dream feeling so exhilarated and energized and 
It was very healing. It, it was healing personally because John looked great. He looked happy. He looked healthy. As I said, he was in his element doing what he would have done. And that message was, I believe, a universal message about eternal life that once somebody's out of the body, they're fine. And the people who weren't fine were those of us who are still here on earth, who were scared, angry, worried, anxious. And so that dream has stayed with me all of these years. I'm a counselor, I'm a minister, I'm a teacher. So it's been really helpful to me with people who either are dying or people who are in a bereavement process, who are dealing with loved ones who are in hospice or in the process of death and dying. And it's, uh, if there's one dream that I would say changed my life, I would say it's that one, although many dreams have changed my life. Yeah, well, and, and is that, did you need that confirmation? Like that, but what did it, is there anything else that it did for you? Or is there something, because we can talk about subjects like these and you, you don't, if you, unless you've experienced it for yourself, then it probably falls under the realm of belief and beliefs are slippery. You know, beliefs can kind of come or go and beliefs can be influenced by new information. So you, you know, it, once you had that absolute sense that John was there. I mean, you'd already had the other dream, but what I'm trying to get at is, was there something, some way, we talk about the way that dreams change and that shape us. Can you address that through the dream, the last dream that you just described? And feel free to bring in anything else from your dream life that talks about the ways that it has shaped you. And my question was really more of like, was there a dream that helped you to go from belief to knowing for yourself for sure? I, I would say this dream more than any other dream because it was so solid. It was so clear that there was no doubt in my mind that he actually was alive, for lack of a better word, in the inner levels of consciousness. And I wasn't raised with a religion, so I wasn't even raised with a belief in the afterlife. And there was no doubt in my mind when I had that dream that he was there. There was no doubt in my mind that that message he gave me was true. And one of the ways that that dream changed my life is that when I talk about it, it opens the floodgates for other people who have had visitation dreams that they've been afraid to talk about. They've kind of kept it to themselves because they don't want someone to talk them out of it. There's a book that the International Association for the Study of Dreams published that's called Dreams That Changed Our Lives. And it's divided into sections of different types of life-changing dreams. And I was asked to be the chapter editor of the section called Life Continues that's about visitation dreams. So people from all over the world contributed dreams that they had. And I mean, I never had anticipated that that would change the course of my professional life to be in a position to 
counsel or educate people about life after death. And it's been and still is quite remarkable to me how common that experience is for people to have visitation dreams. I mean, I was 15 when my father died. And had I known about that, because I also was not home when he died, never got to say goodbye. We didn't even have a funeral for a variety of reasons. And it took me decades to have even a little bit of understanding of what was happening at that stage in my life. And had I known then about visitation dreams, I probably would have done some work to try to connect with him in a dream state to say goodbye. So I hope that my experience with this dream puts me in a position that I can help other people who want to have some kind of healing or resolution or closure. And you've uh, given, without having to say it through your example, um, you've given a piece of advice. This is that this is something that you can ask for. You wrote about it in your journal before that first uh, dream when he, you know, when at the graduation ceremony, you, you, you said it from your heart and you put it down on paper and you asked and yeah. you, that you got a response. And this is something that I've um, encountered with, uh, with uh, people who are struggling with this a similar sort of, you know, they want a visitation, they want to have the dream. And I go, have you asked? And you, it's, it's not all the time, but the remarkable number of times where they want, well, well, no, they should just know. And I'm like, no, 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 this is, you know, set the ball in motion. You need to do your part in this. You need to ask for it. It's not a guarantee that you'll get your response, but I can tell you from experience that there's a lot of people who say that it happens very quickly, you know, and that what they needed to do first was to ask and write it down on a piece of paper um, like you did in a journal or just something that they can like, you know, take to bed with them, maybe even put underneath their pillow. And it says, Hey, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to see you again. Please come to me in my dreams. Um, is there anything else from those uh, dream experiences that you can say? And, and, and just the overall uh, picture that this is painted where um, you can say that it has uh, changed or shaped you or even helped you to change and shape others. I think that overall the practice and not just belief, but use of intuition is something that I really developed during that time and that I continue to develop. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if this is true with everyone, but it seems for me that in times of crisis, it tends to uh, seem to open channels to intuition sometimes more than when everything seems to be going fine. Yeah. So one thing that I uh, try to practice for myself is to be as I, I'm always open to intuition, but to develop a regular communication with my intuitive mind to have that be as much a part of my life when things are going great as it does when I feel a, an urgent need for it. And it's kind of interesting because during this pandemic time, I've heard many people say that they dream more and I don't think they're dreaming more. I think they're more aware of their dreams yes. <laughs> because yes. 
they're less busy. They don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. They're not rushing around as much. I mean, that's not true of everybody, but it's true of a lot of people. So there's been a greater opportunity for paying attention to that inner life. And I think that people are much happier when they have a balance of the inner life and outer life. I think people who spend all their time in the inner life can be kind of ungrounded and maybe not practical. People who spend all their time in the outer life can get kind of exhausted. So one of the lessons that I've learned and continue to practice is to have a balance of both. People might call it right brain, left brain, or inner life, outer life, reasoning, intuition. I think it's important to have a, a balance of those. And to uh, and to do the dishes and pay attention as you're doing them. Um, I cracked up when you said that because I'm I find that my mind wanders when I'm doing chores. And I did, I specifically said when I'm doing the dishes, I want to engage my mind with the process of doing, you know, the physical what I'm smelling, the soap, you know, for example, what I'm feeling, you know, the clean feel of the dishes, what I'm doing, picking up, you know, dish from sink putting dish in, you know, underwater to rinse, putting dish into dishwasher, like make myself be fully engaged with that process. Because otherwise, I'm not as mindful and my mind will go off into other places. But what I'm noticing is, is by doing that and doing it like I'll do intention walks, I'm going along, I'll see something and then I'll kind of to, you know, I'll close my eyes and see how well I can memorize that object that I looked at, especially things like a tree or that's not like a stop sign where I have memories of that object that I can pull in. Instead, I'm really trying to remember what the object was. What did it look like? Um, and then I'll do other things like I'm listening for the birds. How often can I sit there on a walk and I'm off in my thoughts and the birds are just having this, it's like this beautiful choral music going on around me. And then I go, wait, the birds are chirping. Let me tune into this. And I listen to it very closely. And these are things that I'm doing that are, I'm noticing that it's making me a more aware in my dreams because uh, there's uh, just that a mindfulness that we have in our waking lives can carry over into our dream lives. Um, and also developing that other side of the mind where it's maybe a little more intuitively based and feeling based. And that's carrying over into my dream life where the dreams are becoming more, um, it's not that the dreams are changing, it's that my awareness level in the dream state is changing. Um, and so the practice that I'm doing of mindfulness and other things that you like what you've suggested where you can develop your intuition and stuff um, will carry over into your dream state. And then that becomes a feedback loop back into your waking life, too, because, you know, you know what it's like to wake up from a dream and you've just done something new, you know, like, hey, I was able to face that thing that I always ran from. And now you feel like energized. You're like, wow, you know, you feel empowered. Um, so there is this wonderful feedback loop that happens between your dreams and your waking life. Um, is there anything else about visitation dreams, about John, um, anything at all that you want to share with our listeners? We'd appreciate it, Laurel, if you have anything. I don't know that I have anything more to share about visitation dreams. I do think that what you just said about how your waking experience 
influences your dreams. I think that's important for people to be aware of because I think what we give attention to grows. So if somebody is focused on fear in their waking life, they are more likely to have dreams where they are afraid. Or if they focus on wanting to discover solutions in their waking life, they're more likely to have dreams that will give them solutions. And I think that there's no such thing as a bad dream. I think all dreams are good because they all give us feedback, whether it's what I would call a side dream, the ones we've been talking about, the telepathy, clairvoyance, visitation, or a symbolic dream. You were talking about the difference between ordinary or symbolic dreams or extraordinary uh, dreams that have a component that has a, a resonance in waking life. I think all of those are important elements of our experience. And so even becoming aware of one's own dreaming process is valuable. And I know one thing that I have discovered about myself is that I tend to have lucid dream envy because I don't have a lot of lucid dreams. Yeah, me too. And I've practiced it some, but you know, I hear about these people that have amazing lucid dream experiences all the time. And I think, you know, why is it that they have that? But, it, you know, it's kind of like, why does someone have straight hair and someone else has curly hair? I think there's a need for all kinds of experiences. So it's important to respect our own dreams and how they communicate with us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there, uh, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up too. Um, Robert Wagner came to mind and I have a friend of mine, Ian Wilson, who, uh, teaches at, uh, dreamingforgamers.com. He teaches these techniques he's developed over decades where he's programming his lucid dreams as interactive simulated environments like 3d video games or movies. He's had these wild dreams that played out like the cantina scene from Star Wars. And he, what he does is as he's going to sleep is he loads his memory with the cantina scene. And then he stays aware as he's transitioning into the dream state. And there comes a point when that murky in-between state that he's in suddenly becomes the cantina. And the he interacts with the characters who are programmed as if they are movie characters. In in other words, they're not doing what he's telling them to do. He's what he's doing is they they are acting on the fly and he's responding to them. And he's had these dreams that it seemed like they were, I mean, if it was a movie, it would have been a good 20, 30 minute scene where he's actually playing out and role playing in this environment and i'm like god man this is amazing that what you can do and then i you know i wake up in the middle of the night i'm taking galantamine which is said to spark lucid dreams i'm i'm doing reality checks i'm looking at my hands i'm you know i'm doing all the things that people like ian and robert wagner say that you can do for lucid dreaming and the best i get every once in a while is you know five or ten or fifteen seconds of lucidity and then i Usually I get too excited and I wake up um, <laughs> or I spin back into ordinary dreaming again. Like, you know, like, oh, I'll be like, hey, I'm lucid. This is great. Let's start to fly. Yeah. Okay. I got my feet off the ground. I'm flying. 
And then, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds later, I'm right back into whatever, you know, like I'm not lucid anymore and I'm right back into the dream again. So I guess there are some people who are built for this. There are some people who I guess it's just honoring your own experience and taking what you've got and working with it. You can practice these skills. You can ask for a visitation dream. You can develop your intuition. Um, and and you will get the response, one, I guess, that you're ready for. And two, would you say it's fair to say you'll get the response that you're built for? I would. I think it's like so many different ways that we can look at ourselves. People have different astrological influences. They have different um, types, the Jungian types that are, you can test with a Myers-Briggs. There are different Enneagram types. I mean, these are all tests or assessments that people have developed to describe that there are different ways that people are motivated. There are different ways that they tend to naturally move through the world or think or feel. And I like what His Holiness the Dalai Lama said in his acceptance speech when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. This is a little bit of a paraphrase, but he said that when he travels the world, he meets people who wear different clothing, their skin is a different color, they speak different languages, but basically they're all the same. They're all human beings. And I think that all of those differences in expression, whether it's language, skin color, clothing, belief system, I think that the different expressions are there because we're different people. And so instead of discounting or taking for granted what our own experience is and thinking that someone else's is better, as you say, you know, we can always practice developing skills, but I think at a certain point, if we're practicing something and it doesn't seem to be working that well, maybe a better question to ask is, you know, what's my superpower? What is it that I should be developing in myself? Because that's really what my natural inclination is, or that's what my strength is. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. And and maybe your you know maybe your superpower is cooking a good nutritious meal you know in the sense that it's like you know maybe it won't be telepathy or lucid dreaming or something like that but there's going to be something that's going to be shown to you that you're really good at and that you will be able to use it for your benefit and for others. Um, I think uh, you sound like you're someone who would be familiar with Edgar Casey and he spoke repeatedly of taking what, you know, using what you have, whether it's one talent or 10, referring back to the old parable, you know, what do you do with it? And can you put it in service to self and to others? And if you do those things, then um, you're honoring the gifts that you have. And he says, in some cases, what it does is it means that you are made ready to receive more gifts. Um, but it's what you do with it. And the uh, the ways that you honor it. Laurel, is there a way that if uh, people wanted to look you up, uh, a website, uh, books that you've written, anything like that, um, before we go, I want to give our listeners a way of reaching you if they want to. Sure. I do have a number of books I've written. My website is my name. It's laurelclark.com. And people can email me at 
laurel, that's L-A-U-R-E-L, at laurelclark.com. So I would love to hear from any listeners and would love to share my books with you. And I'm also teaching a class on dreams um, online. So yes, please get in touch with me. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. You you really gave some practical ways of assimilating these experiences and processing them and then knowing what to do in response sometimes when you have these very unusual dream experiences and waking life experiences. You did drop a nugget in there that you'd had a waking life visitation too. You've shared how these dreams have shaped you, and it sounds like that they're, they've, they, they're, you have evolved onto the path where you are now as a dream worker and as a minister and as a teacher, and that it sounds to me like it's an extension of where you've walked it to here and that your, your understanding of your dream life has helped you to make the decisions to go off into these places where you find yourself now. But maybe when you started walking down that road, when you first started it, you didn't know that this is where you were going to end up. And it shows in a wonderful sort of way that we end up in the places where we belong if we will trust that there is guidance coming to us from within ourselves, our own voices, our own deep essence will guide us through our dreams to help us end up in the places where we are going to get the most out of life and be able to do the most good and service to others. So thank you so much, Laurel, for sharing your story. And thank you, John, for, uh, for, uh, uh, being part of that story too. I hope he, I hope he's proud of um, what he's heard today also in this podcast. Well, thank so. you, Jason. Thanks for your great questions and sharing your experiences also. Dreams That Shape Us podcast is created and co-hosted by J.M. DeBoard and me, Steve Erninwine. Recorded and edited and shared by the both of us. And all the original music that you heard throughout this podcast was written and performed by me, Steve Erninwine, a.k.a. AQ The Dreamwalker. If you want to find out more great information and the wisdom that J.M. DeBoard carries within his heart and soul, Please check out his website at jmdebord.com. That's J M D E B O R D.com. And if you'd like to hear some of my other music outside of the instrumental stuff that I do, 
I also perform and write and produce hip-hop music slash singer-songwriter music uh, that is almost exclusively inspired by my dreams. And so if you go to any of the streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Google, any of those, type in AQ, The Dream Walker, and you'll find my latest album. I'm almost done recording my follow-up album, and I'm so pumped to share it with you. And actually, at the end of this episode, I'm going to give you a sneak preview into one of the tracks that relates to this episode. It was inspired by a dream that I had where I was trying to write a song about death, and the dream gave me this amazing song to write from the perspective of a lover who was dying of a slow killer like cancer. And the song is the lover's way to say all the things that they would want to say before they left. It's amazing. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to find out more information on our wonderful guest and my dear friend, Laurel Clark, please go to laurelclark.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L Clark.com. And just a side note, I want to say to the conversation about the lucid dreaming envy because it comes very natural to me that I can understand everything you guys said but at the same time the intuitive experiences that Laurel has had and I know she's had more than what she has told us here tonight I'm pretty envious of that to be honest with you (laughs) so we really do have to just honor the gifts that we have because we all have something beautiful to give and to offer and we all have our own beautiful way of interfacing with our dreams and with other aspects of our life that are beautiful and worthy of envy from other people. So, thank you. And if you love what we're doing here, sharing is caring, man. It helps us obliterate the Western myth that dreams mean nothing and inspires more people to take their dreams more seriously. So any help you can offer us is greatly appreciated. If you can leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, if you can share this with your friends and family and all of your networks, we would appreciate it so deeply. Things are starting to pick up speed here, and we are so grateful for all of your support and all of you who are out there listening. We love you all. Thank you so much. And a deep and handsome thanks to Laurel for sharing her amazing story with us all. We love you. Nighty night. Time is closing I can feel the moment drawing near And with all the resistance that I put up Man, I thought I'd fear it But I feel peace The Holy Spirit is here with me And I can feel it drawing me close So I guess I ought to let you know Everything I need to say before I go You've been the best There's nothing about our time spent that I regret Cause You love me so deep And I hope that doesn't break you when I leave But I hope you grieve 
I hope you let it flow May it be in praise of all the love that we've known Cause I believe our hearts break to wide enough Once we can heal the grief that's inside of them So may that be my parting gift to you May it not break you in two but show you, you And how deep your love really is Cause it really is You are brilliant And I mean that from my heart And I felt it from the very start Our love is art in a way I'd have never imagined And at a depth that I still cannot fathom You could never understand all the joy that you bring to me Just know that you mean everything to me And don't think that I'm just leaving your side, my boo Know that I've just moved deeply inside of you I will always be with you But God, I'm gonna miss you Just one more thing before I kiss you You gotta promise me yeah.